0: The aim of coaching is to um, facilitate high performance in the physical sense and competitive sense, but also to facilitate um, social emotional growth and, and sort of holistic well being, and that those two things are mutually reinforcing and not mutually exclusive.
1: Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to share this q and I hosted with Dr. Julie McCleary as a follow-up to episode 18 of the podcast. Dr. McCleary is a professor and researcher at the University of Washington. Her primary research and teaching focuses on the ambitious coaching core practices, which you'll hear more about in this episode. She's a former U.S. national team rowing coach, and since she stepped away from that, she's coached her kids in multiple sports. In this Q&A, we dive deeper into the 15 ambitious coaching core practices, including how to use those core practices as an evaluation tool, Navigating the social-emotional aspects of coaching, helping athletes embrace mistakes, working in an environment or with other coaches who you don't align with philosophically, and a lot more. If you'd like to check out a PDF that has all 15 ambitious coaching core practices listed and some additional information about each of them, check out the show details for a link that'll show you that PDF. Two quick things before we hop into the episode. First, if you enjoy the episode and want to get the free podcast notes, go to coachesclubpod.com. Second, registration for the next round of free virtual book clubs on The Coach's Guide to Teaching is now open. Spots are filling up fast, so claim years before they're gone. The book clubs are four weeks long and cover chapter three from The Coach's Guide to Teaching. If you want a sneak preview of what the book clubs are like, check out bonus episodes two and three, which include a preview of the book club, then have a Q&A with Doug Lamov. I'd love to have you join the next round of book clubs. Go to cgtbookclubs.com or click the link in the show details to learn more or sign up for free. Now let's get into the Q&A. A special thanks to the coaches who participated in the Q&A and submitted some awesome questions. Enjoy the episode. Dr. McLeary, how about we How about we start with just a a brief recap of what the ambitious coaching research is and then okay. I think I have the first question I want to get into after that.
0: Okay, sure. So, um the ambitious coaching came because I, I have my doctorate is actually in, um, education policy and I worked in the education field. And so at the university of Washington, where I studied, they in teacher education, they were using ambitious teaching, which was, um, that was how they were thinking about teacher education. And it was, how do we teach teachers to teach both the student and the content, like both things together, bridge, bridge that gap. And, um, so I wanted to bring that idea to coaching and the gap that, that I was thinking about bridging and what ambitious coaching is, is is saying that the aim of coaching is to um, facilitate high performance in the physical sense and competitive sense, but also to facilitate um, social emotional growth and, and sort of holistic well-being, and that those two things are mutually reinforcing and not mutually exclusive. So that's, that's sort of, then from there, that's when I started diving into the research around the core practices, like, okay, so if that's what ambitious coaching is, then how, how do coaches do that? And how can we, how can we teach coaches to do that also?
1: I just dropped in the chat for you guys. If you want to hit, if you want to click that link, that is a really awesome PDF that shows all fifteen of the core practices for ambitious coaching. And so maybe can have that as a frame of reference as we continue this conversation. Uh, maybe if you have a follow up question on one of those. But, uh, Dr. McLeary, I want to, I want to, I think it was Coach Sire's question first, and he just asked, "Have you guys developed a survey instrument?" That measures each of these components. There's 15 different components of ambitious coaching or core practices, Mm -hmm. and like, how do we evaluate coaches on that? Maybe what should what could an ideal evaluation process look like? Yeah, anything. Yeah, no, I love that
0: question because um, that's that's where this started. So when I came to the Center for Leadership and Athletics, they asked me to help them develop an evaluation mechanism for for coaches. And I said, okay, but what are we evaluating them on? Like, what's our framework that we're using to know where to even start with an evaluation? And wouldn't we also have to be able to train them on these things in order to evaluate them on them? So I sort of, as I like to do, sort of backed the whole project up and um, but the aim was always to be able to make it an evaluation tool. So you are like on to the next steps and we're, we're digging into that by the next steps in the research is to really figure out each core practice. So, so feedback is the one we've worked the most on, like what are the, the three to five feedback moves, um, that we think are the most demonstrative of ambitious coaching or ambitious feedback. And then those will sort of what will be fall would fall under that evaluation mechanism. But I but I was thinking, I mean, I can't remember Luke if you shared also on our website, there's like a flip snack book. I don't know if you've ever seen it's like basically an interactive um, PDF type thing. And it has all 15 core practices and it has a much more detailed description it has video examples it has like links to articles i mean honestly if you felt like going out and sort of looking through that and then picking out three to five pieces for each core practice that you wanted to try as a way to start evaluating coaches or even just even like i think the most useful thing is just to start watching coaches for the core practices like go to a practice, we do this in my classes, I'll take them to UW, you know, volleyball practice or UW, you know, what basketball sometimes is in session in the summer when we're teaching and and they just bring a clipboard and they start coding for the core practices. Um, and it's just a way to really like break down and to to see and be able to talk about what we're seeing with common language. And I, I, it, I find it really, really helpful. Or we just watch video and we code it and and analyze it. So I'd say that's a starting point for developing an evaluation tool. Um, you know, which of the core practices don't you see? Um, which do you see some and you're kind of like, yeah, but I know that's not maybe the, you know, the moves we want to use in giving instruction. Like I'm seeing way too much direct instruction or something. Anyway, so I'll I'll leave it at that and see what questions you have um Ron or others about that.
1: Yeah. Coach Sires, do you have a follow-up to that?
0: Yeah. I didn't know.
2: Okay. Yeah. That the, yeah. That was yeah, cool. Go for okay. It. Yeah. Julie, thank you very much on that. I, Cause I was um, in, in part of the the teaching though that I have too. I'm also our uh, athletic coaching minor coordinator here at the university. Hmm. Um, so I teach athletic coaching classes, leadership classes in that. And that's one of the things that we do in our, our clinical placements um, is that we will go out and code. And I was thinking about using those 15 core practices, adding that in, uh, yes. through the evaluation. Um, I, I also do research on um, the the practices, the five practices of exemplary leadership, Kuzis and Posner's work, the leadership challenge. And I'm doing work right now with Barry Posner trying to find out which of those practices have the biggest impact on student athlete grit. Um, hmm. And so in this, that's, why I was just, I was just pondering that as I was as Luke sent that thing out like wow if, if you had an instrument for this could would there be a possible way to look at these 15 core practices as, as the independent variable right and see which of those would actually impact whatever yeah. it is that we're trying to measure whether it's efficacy or grit or satisfaction or retention or, or something like that so um, that, that was just well, kind of what I was asking but I, but I really love the idea of the coding and I, I will definitely add that to our classes this fall
0: and, and I would just say, go for it in terms of whatever you want to do with the core practices, because what we've seen in teacher education is that people just take in these core practices and they started as much more general. And now there are core practices core practices in secondary math instruction, there's, you know, core practices in elementary history. And I have always like envisioned the same thing for sport, right? Like the core practices might be slightly different based on your coaching context, whether that's the age or the the sport itself. And so my hope is that other researchers and practitioners will pick it up and kind of play around with it and, and see what, what fits best for them and makes the most sense. And, and also just um, there is the only other person I know doing core practice work right now in sport is at Ohio State, and I'm going to blank on his name, but he's written um, an article on the core practices in physical education instruction. Okay. So that might have a little bit of overlap too with the work that, that you do, and, and maybe with your Susan as well. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. I'll try to remember his name by the end of this conversation. Okay. So I can you in that direction.
2: <laughs> Thank yeah. you. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I have a follow-up question to kind of that train of thought around just an evaluation instrument. Mm -hmm. I don't think that often coaches are getting evaluated or feedback from administrators or organizers. Just, I mean, oftentimes they're just out there coaching and there's no feedback follow-up. so just, would you talk about maybe, I don't know if it's part of the research or not, or maybe just your thoughts on it. What would an ideal evaluation process look like from an administrator or an organizer for a coach?
0: Yeah, got I think it I think it varies by context, but I, I'm gonna speak a little bit first from like the high school sports context, because um, that's where I find it to be the most lacking, actually. And I think part of the problem there is with not um, that athletic administrators aren't considered instructional leaders in the same way that principals are considered instructional leaders, right? Principals go into classrooms and evaluate teachers because they're the instructional leader of the building. But athletic administrators aren't given the same kind of latitude in their job to serve as like support, retention, training around coaches, like they don't have enough bandwidth to do that. Like in what I don't know every state, but I know in Washington state, for example, many athletic administration uh, contracts are only nine months. And the ones that are 12 months are often because they blend them with like active activities coordinator. So you're, you're coordinating all student body activities. There's just no way to actually provide the kind of support to your coaches that they need. Um, in the way the contract and the job is is structured. So I think I see more like youth sport or club level director of coaching folks doing more because that's their dedicated role, right? So um, that's where I see the most of that happening is more at sort of, I don't know, academy level or like higher level clubs where they say this person's in charge of coaching and they actually might know something about coaching and go out and evaluate and support coaches. But it's just so hard because we'd like to create an evaluation, but first we have to have it a person who has the knowledge to both like do the evaluation, but also provide the follow-up support. Like evaluation doesn't do any good unless we're able to provide the follow-up support. And the we just haven't built sports that way, unfortunately, I think. And then last thing I'll say at the collegiate level, again, I, I can't speak to all different you know across community college and and different levels of sport but in the power 5 conferences the athletic director is certainly not an instructional leader in any way and all the coaches are seen as sort of islands and that they have the competencies they need and not that, that there's anybody out there who is really evaluating them at that instructional level it's really on wins and losses and maybe on sort of the most high level morale culture items or egregious breaches of conduct. Mm. So there's no structure for us to do it, even if we wanted to do it, I guess that's the answer I have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I, I want to hit on another question. I think it kind of connects to something we, you hit on in the, in the first question and just with the core practices really needing to be contextualized to, the age, the sport, the context that you're mm-hmm. in. Uh, one of the questions that a coach sent was this, you know, given that children grow physically, intellectually, emotionally, morally at, at different rates, but our sports are organized chronologically, right? Until you get into later high school. Yeah. How can a coach deal with individuals who aren't ready for instruction or skills that others are ready for, or that others are embracing.
0: Yeah. um, That's like, that's the hardest thing we all have to do in our job as coaches and teachers, right. Is differentiate our instruction. So I would say every kid is level ready for some level of instruction. It's just our job to, differentiate and figure out how am i going to scaffold this to get this kid from you know i don't know that zone in that zone of proximal development from what they can't can't you know what they can do to what they can't yet do like that's just that's our our job and so um i think unfortunately in sport what gets in the way is the winning whole situation right where instead of saying um you know, developmentally, I have this picture when I do presentations of my, my kiddo was like in eighth grade, I think. And he, we were at a basketball tournament and the two kids were getting ready to do a jump ball. And one kid was like six, three, and the other kid was like five, eight. And they're standing there at the center. I was like, this is just perfect. This is like, this is youth sports. And you as a coach have to coach both these kids. Um, But what ends up happening is that six, three, let's, let's say the kid's six feet, that six, three kid ends up getting coached like a post player. So we do them a disservice because they've already grown. They're six feet tall, but I'm going to use them to post up all the time and have them do layups. But then in three years, when everybody catches up to them and they actually would need to be a point guard in order to have some long-term athlete development, they're not going to have those skills. Right. So, so Anyway, I would say both we need to do differentiation, but we need to take a long term perspective and all we have one of the principles of ambitious coaching is that we think that all kids are capable of growth, both in terms of their performance and in terms of their social emotional skills. And so I think that's one of the things that that gets forgotten when we're looking at differentiation in sport. It's like, well, these kids are going to be my athletes because they've developed a little bit ahead of the rest of the curve and I forget to invest in the kids who haven't developed who. Are going to develop eventually. And I should really put the same amount of investment into them and not use winning as a reason not to. So I'm not sure if that answers the question, but that was kind of what no, that's, was on my mind.
1: That's great. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth in that. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard, especially yeah. at those younger levels. And I think that kind of segues into one of the other questions. You can hit on a piece of it. And I think this was uh, coach Gurno's question. In the episode we talked, you talked about Dr. McCleary, just coaches not necessarily trying not to go at it alone, right. Or trying to get mm-hmm. everyone else aligned around your same philosophy or outlook. Yeah. And the question is like, what advice would you give a coach that is trying to be a transformational coach, trying to use these core practices but they're kind of working with coaches who might be a little bit more transactional or or kind of old school, maybe Mm -hmm. not willing to embrace some of these core practices and growth. How can coaches handle that or how should they?
0: Yeah. My first response to that was like, the main thing they need to worry about is burnout for themselves. Um, And that that's exhausting. I've been a part of a number of different organizations, little, little league was, was one of them. I was a, the only female little league coach, uh, for a long time. Also the only one with like a PhD in you know, coaching. Um, <laughs> but, but I still got like a ton of pushback on everything that I wanted to do. And so, I mean, we just know that those sort of, when you're swimming upstream, it's just so tiring and it just coaching is so hard anyway. So, um, you know, Matt, I hope that you're taking care of yourself and finding like a support system of people who, who do understand what you're trying to do and like, can keep you going and keep you in it for the long haul because we need the transformational coaches to stay in it and not drop out because it's, it gets so tired of swimming upstream. Um, but then the other thing I thought about that is like, I guess two, two things. Um, like I think sometimes we, we, um, have to figure out what hill it is we're gonna die on. <laughs> I don't know, that's how I say it. Like like we can't fight all the battles. So is there just one thing like that bit by bit or like bird by bird that Anne Lamont saying like, we're just gonna like, just this is my thing this year or this season or whatever it is that I'm just gonna just hone in on it and try to educate folks and just put all my energy and attention to it instead of taking on everything. So um, I guess that, that was one thing. And the other is like, but at some point, if you have to compromise your values and do things that make you feel like you're not able to be authentic or that you have to treat kids or people in a way that isn't aligned with your values, then also maybe don't do it anymore. So I don't know how, how tough the situation is, but I know how hard it can be. So does that, does that help or do you have a follow-up question?
3: Yeah, no. um, It's it's one of those situations where um, I'm in a in a very good setting um, from a professional standpoint. Um, There are there are always improvements uh, that I think everyone desires to see change. Um, Your your few statements on uh, uh, administration um, not. I guess not being the instructional leader that, that coaches need um, and, and as an assistant, that not being my place to mm. uh, call out a head coach or uh, you know seek guidance from an athletic director on how to help improve a head coach that it, yeah. it's, uh, it's just an overall um, delicate balance that'm I'm, that I'm walking. Uh, But I appreciate your, your response and your feedback.
0: Yeah, no, I, we deal with that a lot because at our, so our, our center runs a graduate program, master's in education and athletic administration and in coaching. And so you know our students spend about a year and a half you know learning about you know how to stay true to their values and how to be transformational coaches and you know be an ambitious coach and and learn the core practices and and the tenets of of great leadership and then they go into assistant coach roles right and they and then they're like wait a minute none of this stuff is happening or like some of it's happening, but a lot of it isn't, and I have no power. It's such a hard, such a hard situation, and so I think the advice I give is really similar, which is, like, find the thing that you can impact, right, and then, you know, bit by bit, try to impact as much as you can, but, like, also, if it feels really misaligned, then that's the learning that you take from there and move to the, move to the next place, so good, good luck with that, bit, bit by bit. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I would just say this to that, the bit by bit, unless again, you're in a place that's really misaligned with your values. That's kind of how I've approached the role that I've been in the last few years. And when now when I think, okay, when I started working with the coach that I work with to now, like, man, we've actually together and a lot of credit goes to him for being willing and open to growing. Like we've made some really good strides together. And it was really partly because I did uh, unknowingly, I did what, Dr. McLeary was just saying, I just was like one thing like, Hey coach, what do you think about this one thing? And, and let's see how this works. And then the next year's like, what about this, this year? <laughs> and, and just kind of slowly adding some things. And I think growth and positive change is kind of contagious when people start to see it. And so I think as hard as it can be starting small can actually have some Really big positive effects. So, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, Doctor McLeary. And I think that that really segues nicely into. And I believe this was Coach Rogers' question uh, in the episode. I think it was one of the last things we talked about. You mentioned that you wish you would have known from the beginning that you were doing it right. And so, Coach Rogers' question, she just wonders, like, what are some things that you can speak into as far as developing the confidence or? staying confident that you're approaching it the right way when the results aren't there yet. Mm, How can we be sure that we're, how how do we know that we're doing it right when things aren't going well or that there's struggle and people maybe don't believe in what we're doing? How do Mm -hmm. we navigate it?
0: Oh, that's, that's the, um, I mean, gosh, that's like swimming upstream a little bit too, in terms of like outcome versus process. Right. It's like if everybody's measuring me by this scoreboard, um, or wins and losses, but I'm measuring us by something really different. How do we figure out how to get that into, into alignment, especially if you're in a more high pressure situation. Kristen, are you in a, in a high school or, or a university? I can't remember what you said. Uh, university. Yeah. Okay. And so is there, is there a little bit of misalignment around th- that part? Like, do you feel a good amount of pressure on the wins and losses side or? I don't know that I necessarily feel pressure there, but just kind of that balance of sticking with the things we're doing long enough to see that they are working, or if we need to just completely pivot and go in a different direction. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, I'm not sure I have the greatest answer to that. Because again, I think it's all about sort of having a long term perspective. And and I guess in a collegiate setting, you get four years as like maybe the what you get given to sort of show that long-term process playing out into, I mean, I I think we all on this call probably 100% know that like deep investment in our student athletes and commitment to the process is gonna pay dividends for them in the long run. And so we always have to believe that regardless of what we're hearing from people around us in terms of the the win-loss piece. And I'll say um, again to this this class, I just taught uh, two weeks for these, this um, master's program, and I had one of their first assignments was a reflection on an ambitious coach or a not ambitious coach. And typically, people write about ambitious coaches, but more um, this year chose to write about not ambitious coaches. And I always think it's actually really good for them as an opportunity to process and, like, a little bit more objectively, like, talk about how they didn't create a mastery climate or, you know, talk about how the culture, like, use some of the language that they're learning. Um, But when I read these stories, I am just I'm just blown away by what's going on out there. I mean, there's just really some stuff going on in collegiate athletics that is harming our is harming young people. And so I don't know, Kristen, I think I would just say, like, if you are attending to like the holistic well-being of student athletes, then like you're absolutely on the right track and the rest of it is going to. Pay off in the long run, and it might be the longest run for those students, like well-being and health, and like you know, relationships. Um, but also, hopefully, over time, it would be on the outcome side as well. I think that's that's what we we know is true. Like we know that that's the case eventually if we can put everything in place to make it happen. So I don't know if that was helpful or not. H- happy to take follow-ups, Kristen. If there's more specific uh, question.
1: Yeah. Do any coaches have a follow-up to that?
0: Yeah. That really had my mind
1: going. I appreciate what you shared there. If you do feel free to unmute un- your mic and-, and pop in, if you have a follow-up, I think yeah.
0: that, Oh, I'll just Sorry, say go ahead, like, Dark. I feel like one, like athletes themselves and parents can be resistant to, to some things that are focused on their own well being because they are steeped in a, still steeped in a culture that tells them that's like, and An authoritarian coach is what good coaching looks like. So that's another way that we're all swimming upstream. I mean, there's there's research about women athletes preferring male coaches, um, and they prefer male coaches because that's who they see as coaches, right, in the media, and that's what coaching looks like. And so as we try to, um, I think this is especially true for women, but I think it's true for everyone, as we try to sort of focus more on the relational side it can often feel and look to the people around us like that's not real coaching. Um, I hear that a lot from the youth coaches. We coach like parents will say like, what are you doing? Like there's no drills or there's no, you know, like, why are we talking so much? So, I mean, again, I think we have to just, groups like this are great. I mean, what Luke is doing is amazing to get to hear from a community of coaches who are all trying the same thing and who know that this is the right way to go to have our support system um, so that when we get that pushback, we, we know that we are on the right track. Sorry.
1: No, that's powerful. And I'm going to share just a quick little example of, I think something that reinforces what you just talked about as far as athlete perceptions, something that I'd try to do sometimes when I needed to deliver some coaching to an athlete is just ask them, Hey, can I coach you on something really quick? And their faces are usually like this, like what it's just this. This moment where they're like, why, why is a coach asking me permission to coach me instead of just talking at me or telling? And in just a small way, I think that just aligns with what you were saying as far as the perception of coaching is someone that stands there and tells you what to do instead of. I think probably what we're going for more is is guiding them along this process and hopefully getting them to a place where they Learn a lot on their own, so yeah, I think that's really powerful. As we really do have to battle just some cultural stereotypes and perspectives around coaching when you try to do it a different way.
0: And I have a really just really quick, similar story that we run these things called coaching labs where we take you know some moves from core practices, usually around feedback and instruction, and then we have coaches try them out. And we sometimes are able to do it with their athletes. And so we were working on feedback, questioning feedback, so attentional queuing and then questioning feedback and we sort of say like try to ask like only ask questions right this was like a coaching drill so just go in there and try to ask questions so we start and the coach is doing an amazing job he's only asking questions and eventually a kid raises his hand and like yeah what's going on he's like coach why are you being so nice (laughs) and it was like (laughs) And it was just it, like, it wasn't that he wasn't being nice before because I've seen coach, but direct instruction feels a certain way, right? It's like, it's coach centric. It's like one directional. This was like inclusive and I'm asking your opinion and athlete centered. And it just felt, felt really different and kids aren't always used to it. So I think agree Luke, with what you said.
1: That's a good story. The next question I want to ask, and I think it hits on something you were talking about earlier with approaching this from the perspective of we're going to care about the whole person. And I believe this was another one of Coach, coach uh, Gurno's questions. So, getting into the Simone Biles situation that, hand, that just happened in the Olympics, and Coach Gurno said, like, at times maybe he has a pitcher tell him, you know, I don't have my best stuff physically or mentally and so knowing the context of what just happened with Simone Biles how can coaches best approach and handle athletes in this situation, situation and you know in in a team setting maybe specifically too like recognizing that you know, 80% of one player's performance might be better than another player at 100% how do we approach situations like that and coach Gurno, if i didn't represent your question perfectly feel free to hop in if there's anything you want to clarify
3: no uh luke you you did that beautifully um i'm pretty wordy and that was a hard hard question to dictate so uh you you did that well
0: um yeah i i thoughts about that and um first first i do want to say that it was really interesting teaching a course on ambitious coaching during the olympics with the simone biles Uh, situation you know happening in real time and having I really feel like it changed sport like it was a momentous occasion and especially for somebody who is you know spending their their career and their research talking about the um the inextricable link between you know holistic well-being and peak athletic performance like it was this moment that's like there it is that's it that's the moment so i appreciate you you bringing that up and i and i hope that it's something you know that will stay in the coaching culture a little bit more you know and so all this swimming upstream that we're doing you know we now have something to point to to say like listen it's not this this well-being stuff is not like the add-on it's not extra it's like it's part and parcel of our jobs to help people perform at their best is to take care of Of all of them and treat them holistically. So I I hope that it will um it will help us all make change as well. But on the on the pitcher question, um let's see, I, I had a whole whole bunch of things. One, you're coaching high school athletes, Matt. Well, one, I think if an athlete is able to tell you that they're not at their best mentally or physically, like, Good for them. I mean, I have three boys, and I'm not sure any one of their all teenagers, especially my one who was a pitcher—would have ever said that because he would think that that's not something he's allowed to say. So, in some way, we need to honor that, right? We need to say like, "Thanks for being able to tell me that. Tell me more about it." Like, and and again, back to Simone Biles. I don't know you all might have read. There's an article in the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal that talked about how when she was 13. She had a similar experience and she wanted to stay in the, in the competition. And the coach said, no, it's not safe. Like you, you can't stay in. We need to take you out. And she said like that coach, having set that example allowed her later in her life to be able to say, okay, now I can advocate for myself. I know it's not safe here. So especially when we're coaching younger kids, we have such a, I think, obligation to be able to respond to them when they are able to tell us they're not doing well. Um, and then I guess my other was more of a question, Matt, like, is the, is the kid just worried about performance, um, and that really their 80% is going to be just fine? Or they, is there some kind of harm going to come to them? So, so I guess I would sort of help them understand that maybe their your 80% is all I need today and not everyone's at their best all the time. And like, let's go out there and get a few innings and see how it goes. And we'll, we'll touch base, you know, between innings, um, and but they're telling you that their arm hurts, or that they think they're going to put themselves in some kind of harm's way, mentally or physically. Then I would say we honor that and don't start them. I don't know. Is that is that no that's, situation? That's, yeah, that
3: that's perfect. Um, the the summer organization that I that I coach for um, is very much focused on like long term uh, development and health and safety of our, of our athletes. So, um, those conversations happen very regularly. Uh, and, and then kind of going back to my original question, like some of those small bit by bit things, um, that I'm attempting to instill in the high school setting, uh, that is, that is one of those points, uh, mm-hmm. at the JB, at the JB level that we instill. Um, but then those are not always met those conversations, those, uh, admissions are not always met with the same, um, the same glasses, the same lens, mm-hmm. uh, as, as they would be previously. Um, it, it's more so about the, the win than it is about the, the long-term health of uh, of a pitcher for, for example, so.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes, that makes sense. And I see that distinction maybe between a high school team or season and a, and a club, a club team, but it also, it makes me think of something else that came up, um, around the Simone Biles piece, which is that, especially if we're coaching younger kids, like part of our job is to get them to understand that their ceilings are maybe not their ceilings, right. To like get them to push a little bit past. So, so is it your job to say like, no, I I know you can do this, right, or is it our job to say, oh, you're not feeling well, okay, then no, because in a lot of high schools, and maybe on JV teams in particular, we'd have everybody at the trainer, um, if we all, right, like, it's just, it's a, like, it's a tough, it's a tough thing with young kids to help them know, like, that 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 pain is soreness and that's okay. And that's what we're aiming for. And so we talked about how we balance that in in class. I was talking about this and it's like, it's really tough. And I think it's just more of a, a nuanced thing. Like instead of always saying, you know, you know, we play through the pain here or like way to go coming like in after you got injured, it's more like, Hey, like you checked in with yourself, you know, you checked in with the trainer. We think everything's okay. Glad you're feeling well enough to go back in the game and not like, you know, just like throwing people back at, I don't know. I think it's just about like creating a new language around how do we, on, how do we both honor that people have limits and we want them to be able to advocate for those limits. And our job as coaches is to say, like, I think I can stretch you like 2% more to be able to physically perform uh, better. So. All right. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That was great. And to follow up on that coach Bogart, was curious, and I think this ties in well to core practices, maybe kind of seven and 12 routines and social, emotional skill building, uh, coach Bogart would just love to hear your thoughts on ideas for athlete or team check-ins for mental and emotional status. What are some ways Mm -hmm. that coaches can get a read on that, check in on that so -hmm. that we know where our kids are at?
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Routines are like 100% the the way to go there. And and so I, I, I'm going to just go with a few off the top of my head, but maybe others here use other routines, check-in routines, but like, um, one that I would like to, I like to use is just a fist to five, like, especially when I would be running a rowing camp and we're doing like two a days and going for two weeks straight. Like I really want to be able to adjust practice and like the first day I'm gonna get all fives because everybody's excited to be there. So fist to five in terms of like, let's say I'd frame it as, you know, energy. Like the, how's your energy? So zero being, I am not, got nothing for you and five is um, ready to go. Uh, and then, so just over time doing that, twice a day before every practice so i really have a sense of what workouts really were hard for them and where i need to pull back or where i can press a little bit more so that's a, a really easy one that you can do you could also do it you could do it around energy you could do it around like excitement or you know any any number of things um i think a lot of coaches have some good routines and i don't know what you coach chris but like especially if you have a smaller team some kind of warm up that allows for the coach to do an individual check-in. So the basketball, like a little bit of a shoot around or um, playing catch and in, in baseball or softball. And, and the coaches are just kind of walking around just doing individual check-ins. I know um, Mike Neighbors, he, when he was at UW, he would use a gum box and it was like the silly little thing, but he just walked around this gum, like offering everybody gum. And that was just his way to check in with you, see if you wanted gum as a starter, but also to get into conversation with you, every single person on the floor, he always offered gum every practice. I don't know if he still does that at Arkansas, but he's a quirky guy. He probably does something even quirkier than gum box. Um, And then, you know, there are more like huddle things. Like if you're close with a team, um, I don't know if it was you, Luke, do you do huddles with your teams? I feel like you were maybe telling me. Yeah, I think
1: I brought that up just that we, at the beginning of practice, we just do a really brief huddle. Oftentimes, I would mix in something. And this was with a group of 10-year-olds that I finished coaching. But at the beginning, we would do something just to connect. Um, sometimes, I'd just be like, hey, you got to give everyone a high five before we start. And just get them moving, connecting with each other. I also, and I didn't do a great job of following through with it. But at the beginning, I tried to institute... Uh, a say hi, say bye rule. So that I told them, like, my only rule here is that you must say hi to me when you get here, you must say bye to me before you leave. And when I told them that these 10 year olds, they're like, this is the only rule, like their eyes, they just thought it was the coolest thing ever too. But, and I think, especially as you have older athletes, they'll realize probably more quickly, like why that you just want to connect with them. And so, yeah. And And I'm pretty intentional about like saying hi to them or saying bye to them. But what I would do differently is I would have been more intentional of making sure that like they came up to me to say hi and to say bye. Uh, Cause I just think that's a really powerful routine that you can establish. Doesn't take any of your practice time away from you, but it gives you just a touch point and a check-in. And then at the end of every practice, we do a quick huddle where we would just do some celebrations from that day about where we saw athletes live out our values or our culture and just give them a chance to recognize each other too. And I think oftentimes like that's a great moment to recognize where they're at socially and emotionally from that practice. And even sometimes to end up having what was maybe a hard practice for a kid, get something positive at the end when either you as the coach can celebrate them and recognize them or even better, one of their peers does. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, those are kind of the thoughts that were coming to my mind around yeah, that. Yeah,
0: no, the, exactly. Just any, I mean, any kind of little check-ins that become habit that kids are, people are going to share more as time goes on. Uh, one football coach we worked with did, um, and I, this is from a coll- collegiate football coach. I can't remember which one, but hero highlight hardship. Have you heard of that one? It's really powerful. Yeah.
2: You just took the words right out of my mouth. Um, yeah. We do that one um, with yeah. our student athletes. Yeah. Kind of a, the setting at the beginning. We get a lot of tears. Yeah. Um, a lot of tears, uh, a lot of hugs, uh, but it's very powerful in establishing vulnerability trust. Yeah. Um, especially when you go first as the coaches coaching staff and yeah. model that for them. Um, then I think that, that's what I was thinking too, by doing that, I then think it establishes that environment to have those those check-in moments. I mean, at the college level here, with I mean, we have position coaches. So it's, it's right. a, in my opinion, it's a lot. I was a high school guy, too, for 15, 16. So it's a lot easier in college with the array of coaches to be able to check in with those individuals um, that you are leading um, to see how they are, how they're doing, how they're feeling um, as well. But, but I really think that uh, that hope, hero, hardship, yeah, I think, if you're not doing that, I would highly encourage you to do it. Um, I've been coaching for 32 years, and I, I would put that up there um, in my top five um, for um, establishing that vulnerability trust, checking in, showing that you care. And absolutely, to me, um, it empowers that that social and emotional learning environment.
1: I'll add this onto there, Coach Cyrus, because I think you'll like it. I know a coach that he wanted – he, he uses the three H's, but he wanted to end it on a positive note. Cause sometimes like that hardship can be really emotional. So he added a yeah. fourth H, he calls it Hulu. So they got to share their favorite TV show afterwards. <laughs> so you can do the four H's too. I like it. I yeah. like it. Um,
0: well, yeah, that- I, I think the Hulu, well, I think that brings up a point though. Like sometimes you can't always just dive in to like, tell me your hardship, right? Like sometimes we might hear things that are like tough to handle. So sometimes starting, you know, with things that are easier or starting with kids who have been in the program and then build, you know, building up over time to hearing those, those hardships, I think is, um, important, important part of it.
1: Yeah. Here is maybe our last big question and then we'll see if we have any follow-ups or final shot, final thoughts you want to share. Yes.
0: Chris said that he uses, um, a Google form check-in and I, I think more people are doing that. Um, I've heard of, Yeah. Check the post. Just looking. at Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the Google form is really great for us as coaches to be able to gauge. It doesn't do as much as some of the relationship building, but it can really tell us like literally take the temperature of of our team and get, we might even get more personal information if we're doing like a mental health check-in. And one, one thing I've had with that is I had a, a coach who was doing that and they did a nice job of like making sure they let the, I don't know what age you coach, Chris, whether it's college or not, but like letting parents know we're doing this check-in. And so, you know, if we want to make sure you feel comfortable with this, it's going to have a question about sort of physical health and and mental health. And this was during COVID. So they felt it was really important to check in on kids' mental health. But um, if we're working with younger kids, just getting consent to do that and having a follow-up plan of action. But I think it's a, it's a great idea. The Google form is a great idea.
1: Yeah. I would ditto that. I know coaches that just drop it in their team group me or their means of communication before practice every day. And kids can just hit the link really quickly. It's like a very accessible way to, you know, as long as your kids have a smartphone here, here's maybe our last big question. And I believe it's coach Rogers question. When we're trying to create an environment that encourages taking risks and embracing mistakes to learn, here's the first question. Like, what are your suggestions for making that change? And then coach Rogers mentioned that after falling short there and having some players that really struggle with being afraid of mistakes, she feels like the trust needs to be rebuilt with those returning players. Whereas the incoming players, they haven't had the experience yet with her. So maybe that's kind of easier to create that environment where they feel okay mm-hmm. to make mistakes. But the second part is, are there maybe some specific actions that you would recommend as far as repairing the damage maybe that was done with those returning players to hopefully create an environment where they feel safer to take risks and embrace mistakes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And a question that, that we get a lot because a, a lot of coaches who have been coaching for a while recognize that they weren't always great at creating an environment that allowed for mistakes. And so we show a video in our trainings of um, UW volleyball coach Keegan Cook, and he's just running a really basic set. He's setting the ball. I don't know what the player's doing. She's she's spiking it. I, there's, but I know I'm not a volleyball person, but she's she's coming up and she's hitting it cross court. Um, and he just does it like five, six times, doesn't say anything. And then he, the only feedback he gives is he says, don't be afraid to hit one into the net. And so then we talk about like, why is that the cue that he's giving? Like of all the things he could say technically to her, you know, why is it? Don't be afraid to hit one into the net. And, and so it's about creating a culture where, Failures okay. And not, not only just failure, is okay. It's like failure is <laughs> the learning. Right. And, and I always say like, when you're, when you're um, weightlifting, you don't know what your max is until you get to failure. Right. Like if you get to failure, oh, the one before was my, was my max. And so I think of it the same way, like this volleyball player doesn't know how steep an angle she can create on this cross court shot until she gets too steep and it goes into the net. So he, he's gotta get her to be willing to play around like that. Anyway, so so that just brings up for a lot of um, coaches, like how hard it is to do that. Um, and to be able to look at things from the, the perspective of failure is the, the learning space. Um, anyway, so to the specific question, um, Kristen, I guess I would say that if if you feel or if any of us ever feel like the culture has gone so far that kids are feeling afraid to make mistakes and um, there are kids who have, have been part of the culture. And like that might be really hard to undo by just changing the way we're going about things. That is probably worth a conversation. That's like, Hey, here's some things I've learned. I mean, that's one thing that we talk about with our coaches all the time. Like when we do coaching labs, one of the best things is that we have coaches like take coaching timeouts and they ask for support when they need it. So they say we say to the kids ahead of time, like your coach is learning during this, they're going to be running the drill, but they might stop it to ask us like a question. And so modeling to your athletes that like, Hey, I've been working on my coaching and here are some things I've learned and I'm going to try to put them in place and they might feel different to you. I hope they're going to feel good. Um, I hope that if you felt afraid to, to make mistakes in the past that you and I can get to a place where it doesn't feel that way anymore. Cause I've learned that that's really a good place for us to be is having a culture where we learn from our mistakes. So that's one thing I would say. And then, um, you know, in terms of the core practices, allowing space for, for me is like the, (laughs) it's the core practice for, um, letting kids problem solve and be creative and explore and the more we can do to set our practices up so that it's athlete centered and that we're creating whether we call it a games-based approach or a constraints-based approach lots of different names for it these days but like we're setting up structures that allow them to have a good time and make a bunch of mistakes and then our job is to facilitate the learning that comes out of that like I just, I think that's what we want to focus on, um, changing the structure of our practices to do that. And it is easier said than done. I was more of a direct instruction coach myself. Rowing also lends itself a little bit to more to direct instruction. So it was hard when I switched to baseball to change that. So anyway, the, changing the structure of the practice and then positive framing. So I think like choosing some words that you or any of us want to start using, like, um, uh, don't, yeah, don't be afraid to hit one into the net. like don't be afraid to whatever. Don't be afraid, you know, don't be afraid to go at top speed here don't be don't be afraid to um, take take your shot when you're open whatever it is. Um, another great question, I think for for folks is like what would happen if you hey, what what would happen if you just like went all out right here? like what would happen if you, you know, opened up yourself to receive the ball a little bit earlier? like, framing what we want them to do in like a question that allows them to think of like oh yeah what would happen let me try that out and then like if they say oh that didn't really work for me then it's really it's on them to kind of problem solve from there um I I, just, I wrote some of them down here oh um another one is like using language like which I probably a lot of you do like we want to, it's like in volleyball again, I'm using the Keegan cook example, but like he says, kids will come in from youth volleyball, terrified of the serve because they're always getting told, just don't hit it out. So he reframes it to like, hit your shot. So like anything we can say where it's like, we're going to run our offense. We're going to, we're you know, I want you to, you know, um, you know, play your defense. I want you to do like giving, like making it theirs and making it feel like you're not telling them how to do it, but you're, you're giving them the space to sort of try on what works for them and own it. Sorry. That was kind of long, but I liked the question. I took a lot of notes about it. So I <laughs> covered some things.
1: I love it. Any follow-up questions to that or coaches, any, any additional questions that you want to get, Dr. McClary's perspective on before we wrap this up.
2: If I could throw one thing that resonated with me when you said that, a couple things here is that one of our mantras is act as if it's impossible to fail.
0: Mm, It's a good one.
2: And if it's impossible to fail, what would you do? I'm thinking of that spiking it, act as if it's impossible to fail. Right. Right. What would you do? You would be willing to more. And then the second thing is I've, I've noticed over the years is that. I too, as an early coach, if we would do a skill, whether it was a team drill or an individual skill or progression and something would go wrong, right, I would immediately be jumping in and providing, you know, 7,950 corrections (laughs) that no one could process. And what I've done over the past decade or so is if something would happen in that is that I would bring the group together. And the easy question I ask them is, hey, what'd you learn? Yeah. What what, what did we learn? And it's amazing what they provide that to me is so much more beneficial than if they're listening to the old ball coach, um, you know, um, pontificate um, what he thinks is his wisdom um, yeah. to them. So just kind of that, that's what resonated. And we have that look, those two things there about, yeah, just setting up that environment. It's impossible to fail. You know, act as if that just go ahead and, and let it happen. And we, and we learn best by obviously when we're going to make those mistakes, but that, that was a great question and a great response to it. I think that's a really, really um, crucial component of successful programs. really do.
0: And really hard to do, like really really hard to do. do. I think especially to the point of the question, like if you've, if you've gone at it one way to sort of back out, to back out of it and sort of change your structure and your language, I I think is a real challenge. I I just did a training down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we had the coaches um, do like a a game-based approach and what was so funny is you know, we talked about allowing space and all the reasons for it. And they each created their game. And then we had two folks run their games and they ran their games. And then the first thing they did after the game was over, both of them, was tell the athletes what happened in the game. <laughs> and I was like, this is not the point, right? Like you set up this great game, they learned a whole bunch of things. And then you sat there and talked to them and tell them what they should have taken away from that. And, and then as soon as you get the athletes to tell you, what they learned, as you said, Ron, you're just blown away. You're like, oh my gosh, like, well, A, I had no idea you were learning that much. Like B, that's something I never thought of. Right. Like it just, it just changes the, the direction of the learning. It makes it just so much more mutual and relational. So, but it's hard, it's hard to do.
1: Absolutely. Well, I want to respect your guys's time. Dr. McLeary, any final thoughts, anything you want to leave the coaches with, oh and then I'll just share a couple quick things before we get out of here.
0: Yeah. I'm just so, I'm just so happy you're here. Um, at loop, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I mean, I just, I feel like, um, the more we can all support each other to, to, to try new things. And I'm just, I feel so inspired by any time a coach is like willing and interested to kind of try on some new stuff and and play with ideas themselves. And I would love for you to, um, you know, ask, send me an email. I'll put my email in chat or like anything, anything you want to do or, um, learn about the core practices. Like we're kind of at the beginning of it and I want people to try it out and give us feedback and see where it can go grow to and, and, and build to. So thanks for being here.
1: Yeah. And Thank you from us for sharing it and for doing the work. It's important. I think we'd all agree that, yeah, we need we need better coaches and we as coaches need to get better. And so I think it's so powerful. Coaches that are on here. I know actually a few of you, I think, are signed up, uh, but I am running some free virtual book clubs that are diving into Doug Lamar's book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, and about to wrap up the first round. And the second round is going to start here in a couple of weeks. I'd love for any of you guys to hop in and be a part of them. They've been really, really fun. This last week in week three, uh, both book clubs had a Q and a with Doug, the author of the book and I'm about to share those on the podcast this week. And I'll also be sharing this Q and a with Dr. McCleary on the podcast as well. And so, yeah, just want to extend that invitation to any of you guys would love to have you be a part of it. It's been really fun conversations like this, but even getting into more, some, uh, practical application for yourself and your sport and your team. And, and so if you haven't read the book yet, one, I'd recommend reading it really, really good book. And then two, we'd just love to have you be a part of it and figure out how to apply it. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to Dr. McCleary for doing this Q and a also a special thanks to the coaches that submitted questions and hopped on the zoom to get better. Your commitment to growth was evident. If you want the notes from this episode, go to coachesclubpod.com to download a free copy of the podcast notes from this episode. And if you want to sign up for the next round of free virtual book clubs, go to cgtbookclubs.com or click the link in the show details. I'd love to have you join the next round of book clubs. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.